Welcome to the All Saints Agape Lecture Series. This lecture was part of a three-part course on the book of Titus taught by Dr. Paul Owen of Montreat College and originally given in September and October of 2020. Enjoy. Okay, uh, well, Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, uh, I've enjoyed being with you guys the last few weeks and and uh, looking at these verses together and uh, kind of thinking about this book has been a lot of fun. Uh, we got up to about uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. Um, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, uh, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, uh, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll go that far for now. Um, so you've got this language of verse 11 that uh, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And um, I certainly think of our communion service when I, I read this language of the grace of God appearing to all men. And what it says about Christ's satisfaction, um, when it says um, uh, that thou dost give thy only Son Jesus Christ to suffer death on, upon the cross for our redemption, uh, who made thereby his one oblation of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Um, a sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And uh, I think that that is supported here by the language of verse 11, that the grace of God, obviously the grace that has appeared in Christ, obviously the grace that um, is expressed in the sacrificial death of Christ is presented, appeared to all men. Um, it can't appear to all men if it's not a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all men. So that seems to uh, go hand, hand in hand. Um, it speaks of the provision of Christ's atonement, um, the basis upon which uh, God extends a genuine invitation of salvation to every human being who will receive it. Um, so there is some sort of at least uh, hypothetical uh, provision of the benefits of the atonement to every human being, which is the basis of the indiscriminate offer of the gospel and the, the blessings of salvation to every, every person that we might encounter. Um, but there might also be another little nuance here when it says, uh, as appeared to all men, he's just got done talking about slaves who are sort of the lower caste of society. And he might be also making the point that Christ has come to be the savior of all men, not just the elite and powerful in society, 
but of, of every person, no matter what their status or class, that, that uh, Christ has died for them. So maybe there's that nuance as well. Um, so what's then the expected response to the grace that God has shown in Christ? It is in verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So um, that's the expected response of love to the free gift of God. The free gift of God's grace elicits forth this loving response from um, the redeemed uh, realm of men, uh, from the church, basically. Um, and I, I, would, I would think here of uh, Romans 2, verse 4, where Paul says about the grace of God, um, Romans 2 and verse 4, uh, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God leads you to repentance. And I think that that's that same response that's expected, that's the appropriate reaction to the goodness of God here in this verse. And it's, it's expressed negatively and positively. Negatively, the, the whole denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, um, that is the loss of this world. Uh, we deny them because they distract us from God. They distract us from uh, prioritizing heaven and uh, eternal life and uh, instead fix, fixate our attention on transient and worldly things that are not part of the inheritance that's in store for us. Uh, we are basically to uh, deny them, not in the sense of denying that they exist, but um, to uh, not make them the focus of our desires and our, our hopes and our, uh, the word I want is, well, the priorities of our heart. And the positively, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Um, so I think that when he, when, in, in terms of that positive statement, that it would be that we are to live in a manner that reflects our preparedness and focus on the coming kingdom of our Lord at the end of the age. Uh, that we should live already in this age in such a manner that our hearts are preparing for the age to come. Uh, that's why he adds there, in the present age. That is, in this present age, this is the time in which we're to be preparing our hearts and our, uh, um, our appetites, our priorities um, for what is in store for us in the world to come. Cultivating a right sense of what is really important. And what is really important is not what is transient and fleeting and set before us in this world. Um, and so that then naturally leads into his language about the return of Christ at the end of the age, a fundamental article of everyone's faith um, as a Christian, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. So Christ's return is a blessed hope for the church, and it is a glorious appearing to the world. It's the blessed hope of the church who's waiting to meet him 
he will catch us up together with them in the clouds to meet him in the air as first Thessalonians four uh, expresses it. But he will also manifest himself to the world in this glorious appearance. He will descend to the Mount of Olives uh, in Jerusalem at the end of history and manifest himself to the nations. And that is expected as well, this glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, uh, his return to this world and his display of his glory in the sight of the nations as described in uh, the Gospels and in various passages of biblical prophecy. Um, and we are in this language of looking for the, this, this return of Christ has to do with our being prepared for his appearance. Um, that living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age is, goes hand in hand with looking for this appearance of Christ, that we're preparing our hearts to meet him at his return. Um, that our, our, our attention is not in the things of this world, but in those of the age to come. I think of Colossians, the, the language that Paul uses in Colossians, um, chapter 3, verse 1, I think it's making the same, the same idea. Um, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, just three verses later, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Um, that is, um, uh, you will appear with him in glory. That is, those who are seeking those things which are above and are ready for his appearance when he returns. Um, so I think all this goes hand in hand. I think of Matthew 25, the parable of the wise virgins, some of which have the oil and some of which run out of the oil in terms of those in the church who are ready for Christ's return and those who are caught unawares and are, are not prepared. Um, so uh, this seems to breathe the same spirit of that sort of apocalyptic expectation that you get in the New Testament. Um, and the only other thing I would say here is, of course, in the King James, there is a, a little, on the authorized version, there's a little difference of uh, uh, our great, uh, of, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, versus the New King James, which has uh, our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, basically, um, in terms of modern study of Greek grammar, um, there, there has been uh, a, a pretty good case made that in the particular construction that's used here in verse 13, um, having to do with the, the nouns that are employed and the use of the Greek article, the word the, that um, the way that the singular the or article governs the two nouns does support this translation, um, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as opposed to God being God the Father, and Jesus Christ being the Savior. So this probably is one place where the newer translations do slightly correct uh, the older uh, New King James, or the, I'm sorry, the older authorized version rendering. So the New King James has our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that, that is probably the best, um, the best way to read it. And so um, this becomes another one of those texts 
where Paul actually does use the, the title God to describe uh, not only the Father, but God the Son as well in a full-blown uh, Trinitarian sense, uh, like in, in, in Romans chapter 9 and uh, verse 5, where Paul says, um, uh, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came is over all the eternally blessed God. Uh, that would be another one of those examples, the eternally blessed God being a reference to God the Son. Um, and then also 1 John 5, um, 1 John 5, and uh, um, uh, verse uh, 20 that says that we are in him who is true and in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. That would be another uh, place. Um, of course, the famous. Oh, go ahead. What's that verse? Oh, First John five twenty. First John five twenty. Yeah, this is the true God, um, and of course that doesn't surprise us too much because of course the famous verse John one one in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Right. Paul seems to speak that way here, um, of the God the Son, basically. Um, so. Moving on to verse 14, who gave himself that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Um, so that's, a, that's an echo of Exodus 19, at the, and uh, where uh, God talks about how he has redeemed Israel from Egypt, and he's redeemed them in order to make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, to purify for himself his special people, zealous for good works. Of course, Exodus 19 comes right before Exodus 20, where you got the whole giving of the Ten Commandments, which rolls into the whole giving of the, of the law in its full-blown uh, detail. And so um, he gave himself for us to redeem us is an echo of that language from Exodus 19 and where the redemption there is the redemption out of Egypt, which of course happened through the, the, the Passover event. And so what you've got going on here is, is typology. Um, the, the redemption that Christ accomplishes to redeem his people was typified in Exodus and the redemption of the Passover event, particularly the, the, the sacrifice of the Passover lambs was pointing to and typifying the redemption of Jesus that he would accomplish on the cross. So uh, just so you know that that is the background there, the zealous for good works, that's the counterpart to the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, chapter 20, the so-called covenant code, chapters 21 to 23, and then the ceremonial law um, in Exodus 25, on through uh, well into Leviticus, dealing with the, uh, the, the tabernacle worship. Um, so the good works are the spelled out in terms of the different aspects of the law. 
the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the types and shadows of the priesthood and the sacrifices, and the civil law, that is, the applications of the Ten Commandments to society. Those are all aspects of the good works expected of the church. Um, and then verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Uh, remember, Titus is really kind of a, he is an apostolic delegate in Crete, and he has the authority to create um, diocesan bishops, that is, to appoint bishops according to city. He has the authority to appoint presbyters to be in charge of particular cities. And so, really, Titus is kind of the, um, uh, an initial archbishop of sorts of uh, the area of Crete. So he wields considerable authority. Um, you know, with all authority, he is, a, uh, he is an apostolic delegate in representation of, of Paul's own apostolic uh, ministry and authority. Um, and so I think that that is, uh, he's telling him to be conscious of the authority that he's been given as someone who's been appointed as being in charge of the churches of this considerable area of Crete as Paul's representative. Let no one despise you. Uh, that is to say, uh, certainly no false teachers, but um, the, the other ecclesiastical leaders are to recognize Titus's position in terms of the ordering of the ministry. And uh, um, he's not just an ordinary bishop. Um, he's kind of a, in charge of bishops, uh, as seen by the fact that he can appoint them. So um, something like that going on here. Um, sometimes people need to be reminded not to be afraid to wield their authority. It's God-given, and, and uh, uh, they're not being, you know, arrogant or presumptuous to uh, exercise the jurisdiction that the church has, has given them. And uh, so that brings us to the end of chapter two. Um, are there any, any questions about anything we've said so far before we take this home? I think chapter three will go pretty quickly. You all can't hear me, right? And make sure that we haven't lost our connection. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, okay good. <laughs> uh, one, uh, thing I, one thing, Paul, I really like just... Uh, the kind of echoing the similar phrases and clauses from, um, you know, verse 12 to verse 14. Uh, the, the idea of the, the negative of denying yourself something, right, or um, being redeemed from something, but that's not, that's not the full stop, right? It goes on because even though we work hard to put away vice, we need to work equally hard to fill that void or fill that space with virtue. And there is the, the path of the Christian, kind of what even in the Old Testament too, there's the exodus, but then there's the movement of the giving of the law to become holy. And always that uh, kind of denying one thing, but also then working hard and completing that denial by working on the positive. Yes. He keeps kind of do, going back on that nice kind of phrasing of, of the, the negative first and then filling in with the, the positive, which is great. Yes, yeah. And of course, a good chunk of the law of God has to do with how you worship. 
Right. And, and that would be a big part, not all of it, but a big part of our good works as well is, is uh, uh, being careful about the way that we um, uh, practice our Christian worship uh, according to, you know, Catholic principles, we'd understand it. Um, yeah, well, uh, let's just look at chapter three. It's just a short little chapter. Um, he says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. And so that language that Paul uses, uh, it would include the Roman emperor and it would include the Senate, as well as the proconsuls and governors of provinces and places like Crete. These would be the, uh, the rulers and authorities that they are being instructed to uh, obey. Um, and he says to be ready for every good work and then I think he kind of spells that out a little bit in verse two, to speak evil of no one, uh, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Um, probably the, the opposite, I think, of Paul's view of typical Roman society, um, warlike, uh, harsh, uh, arrogant. And he's, what he's saying is that in terms of the good works that the people are to be prepared to show, is that the church should offer a kind of haven, a refuge, a contrast with the harsh, brutal, unforgiving world, uh, frankly. And um, that they should see something different in the community of Christ's uh, followers. And those would be the good works that he's calling for, um, especially the, 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 the idea of the gentleness, the kindness, um, that contrasts with the harshness of the unbelieving society. And uh, I don't think uh, our society is really much different. Uh, you know, uh, I think when you think of the world at large outside of the church, I don't think gracious, forgiving, kind, those to me are not qualities that stand out in the world, uh, you know. So uh, it just seems to be the condition of, the, of many societies. Um, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, we ourselves were. And uh, so Paul can include himself, even though he was a zealous Jew, uh, he can include himself and every human being in these qualities uh, because these are all the natural fruits of the flesh or the fallen nature that every person is born with. I think in John 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And th that's why the new birth is necessary. Or I think of Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 to 3. Another one of these we passages where Paul includes every human being in this condition. Um, he says in Ephesians 2, 1 and following, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And then going down to verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So everyone was born needing the new birth. Everyone is born in the condition of needing the grace of God, the renewal of human nature, 
um, that comes through regeneration. And if, all, if given time to uh, mature and to uh, grow, every one of us has the seeds of sin within us that will bear these evil fruits. That's why we all need um, the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. So I think that's why he can say we are, we're all this way because there's nobody who's gotten into the kingdom of God without passing through the grace of the new birth. There's been a transition from death to life for every person in the church. And, um, you know, that trite saying, for the, for the grace of God go I, but it, it, you know, it is really true. There but for our baptisms go every one of us, right? We would all just live for ourselves and be servants of sin. And then verse four, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, note that, note that title there, uh, God our Savior. That's where translating verse 13 helps because that's another reference to Christ. Christ is God our Savior. He is our great God and Savior, according to chapter 2, verse 13. Oh, when did the love of God our Savior toward uh, man uh, appear? Well, when, when Christ appeared, right? Um, so, but uh, this kindness and love of God our Savior appeared um, in Christ, but not just in some sort of theory, it actually has been given to us. And so in verse five, he talks about how this uh, love of God our Savior has been given to the church. Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, that, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So verse 5 talks about this work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, washes us, right? The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit washes us once in the waters of baptism, but then he renews us repeatedly in the Eucharist. And I really think that there are, there are two distinct sort of ideas here. There's the washing of baptism, but then there's also the continual renewal of the weekly Eucharist. And I actually would compare this with a couple of cross-references that I, I think this comes out a few places in the New Testament. One is, uh, you might remember, John 13, verses 8 to 10, where Jesus says this in John 13, 8 to 10. Uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he who is bathed needs only... Oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to back up to verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? And then Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. So I, I believe that you bathe once in baptism, but the continual washing of the feet 
that is the continual cleansing and forgiveness of the pollution and corruption that we accumulate through our sins week by week is um, dealt with through the grace that's offered to us in the receiving of the body and, and blood of, of Christ. So this is the kind of the weekly washing of the feet here. It's distinct from our baptism. And I would also say that Acts 3.19 talks about this in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, where Peter says, um, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So our, our, our sins are blotted out in baptism. Repent and let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But then it says, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that's plural, times of refreshing. I think that is the, the continual grace. We don't keep getting baptized, but we keep appropriating the grace of our baptism in our receiving of the body and the blood in the Eucharist. And so I think that's the renewal uh, of verse 5. We don't get regenerated again and again, but having been regenerated, we continually need the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the, um, the sacramental grace that is, that is offered to us. And then verse 6 talks about how he poured this grace out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, I think this, of course, points to Christ as the one who baptizes his church with the Holy Spirit. Um, Mark 1, 8, and several parallel passages. Uh, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you. He will cleanse you. Uh, he will wash you with the Holy Spirit. And um, so I think that's what he's alluding to there. Through And he says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, he's talking about the Savior is the one who gives the Spirit to us. Um, in, in baptism, certainly. And also by giving us his own presence through the work of the Spirit in the action of the Eucharist. Um, so that's what I would say about that. It's basically the Spirit baptism idea, uh, I think. Christ makes his church one body and one spirit with him in spirit baptism by taking of the Spirit he received from the Father and giving it to us. And um, we received this fullness of grace in the sacraments. I think of John 1.16, which says, of his fullness, we have all received. Of his fullness. That's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And that Holy Spirit that Jesus receives at his baptism, he gives to his church through the sacraments. And that's the fullness that we've all received. Um, in, in John 1 16. Uh, so I think it's sacramental grace that he's talking about here. Jesus, of course, is the one who baptizes us in baptism. Jesus is the one who feeds us with his body and blood uh, in the Eucharist. He's the agent. So the through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then he talks about justification in verse 7, having been justified by his grace. Um, justification by grace is not by works of righteousness, uh, but by God's mercy, which is sealed or made, made official 
um, signed and delivered in baptism. Uh, in baptism, we receive union with Christ through the free gift of the Spirit, and we're reconciled to God by the grace of the new birth, which is our new life in Christ. So it's the new life that makes us uh, one with Christ and raises us to this, um, this resurrection to new life is our reconciliation to God. And uh, that is why he says that we've been justified by his grace, because by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have been brought to God in new life. Um, here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 1 and 2. It's very similar language. Um, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So you see that there being no condemnation, when he says, why is there no condemnation? For the Spirit has made me free. And so it's just justification in the, in the thinking of Paul always happens by the grace of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who makes us one with Christ. And in, in that oneness with Christ, we have this new life. And justification is not just a new status. It is a new life. Um, just as if you're released from prison, you enter a new life. You don't just have a new... Um, you don't just have a new entry on the, the court records, but you actually enter a new, a new life uh, when you're released from prison, right? Um, so uh, I want, we just want to clarify in terms of justification. The grace of justification is, of course, imputed to us in, in a sense that it is only because of, of Christ that we're forgiven, it's only because of Christ's merit that God receives and forgives us, not our own merit of deserving. But I think we have to be very careful because of the way some Protestants talk, I think uh, in a sloppy sort of way, we have to be careful to clarify that the gift of justification is an effective grace that actually changes us. It, it is not merely an external forensic transaction. It is a new freedom uh, it is a new life uh, that we have in that reconciliation with God. And we want to keep those things together and not make justification a purely uh, legal sort of a thing. Um, sure, certainly we're justified or we're forgiven for Christ's sake, for sure. And in that sense, Christ's righteousness is imputed. But that's not all that's going on in justification. And I think that... Uh, in some of the polemics between Rome and the Protestant churches, um, the Protestants have ended up denying things that are, that are plainly in Paul's language about justification. It's not just a change of uh, record book status of guilty or not guilty. It's an entrance into a new life of reconciliation with God. And we, we need to keep that together. Father Glenn, were you gonna say anything? I, I was going to ask you a question. Yeah, go ahead. But it's, I don't want to, I don't want, I mean, you're on a roll, so. I'll oh, no, 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 we're, we're, these last few verses doubled. I, I, I tell you, I mean, it's just striking to me, this, this, uh, a repetition of this phrase, God, our Savior. Yeah. Uh, or uh, 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 the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, and then again, the great God and Savior. Yeah. And then, uh, 
uh, God our Savior again. I mean, that's a stylistic thing too. I mean, th this is this is uh, uh, some identity of the the style of the author here, who I, I accept as Paul. Does that phrase appear in other of Paul's letters? That's my that's what I'm wondering because uh, I, I don't remember it from like Romans and some of the others. I mean, it's it's pronounced here, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it really sticks out here. Yes, um, and um, I would have to, in, in terms of that phrase, I would I I would, I would want to look into that because I you know, I think the typical way of Jesus is referred to as this, you know, uh, Son, Lord, um, right. and, and Savior. I wouldn't be surprised if you can find some examples, but I'd have to trace that out a little bit. But yeah, and what I'm what I'm saying is, it, it's the use of the word Savior over and over again. God, our Savior. Yeah. And Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right. Uh, but that phrase, God, our Savior, he uses I think three times here maybe three times uh, right. in a little, in a little short book, right? Uh, which is, which is a lot. I don't remember the phrase God, our savior showing up in, uh, in the, in, in the other epistles, but you know, it's, that doesn't mean it's not there. I just don't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting phrase. Sure. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, some, I think it's hard to know sometimes what some of the reasons might be for choosing particular vocabulary. It could have to do with subtle. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Subtle subtleties of the way Paul and Timothy, I'm sorry, the way Paul and Titus communicated that Absolutely. we don't have access to that information. You know, there could be. Right. And I mean, it's like, and in, in, I mean, I can, I can see that in, in the sermons that I've written over the years, how an interest might, prompt me to use a phrase right. uh, or something uh, repeatedly during one period that I didn't use previously. And I mean, and it's, it's certainly, I mean, it, it, it doesn't trouble me. I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder what's uh, behind it. It is definitely distinctive, uh, for sure. Um, Can I say something? Oh, yeah, my, 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 my quick look up of that is, is that he uses the phrase, God, our Savior, one, two, three, four, five, six times in Titus. He uses it uh, three times only in First Timothy and once in Second Timothy. Um, so he, he definitely, and once in um, Ephesians and once in Philippians. So the rep repetition in Titus is much greater than in his other letters. And, and the others are pastoral letters, I mean, except for Ephesians. Uh, but you right. have, you have the, the, the latest letters here, I think. Uh, is that right? Are these the, the last? Yes. Timothy, yeah, these are the last three. Yeah, these are the last three letters. Mm -hmm. Well, at Philemon. Uh, but, uh, that, that, but not in Romans. You don't see any in Romans. No, all anything. I don't recall it in Romans. No, it's not in Romans. See, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, that, that, yeah. What about it, it's, re it's definitely repeated multiple times over in Titus more than any of the other uh, writings of Paul. What about first? Did you say Corinthians? 
Uh, Timothy, First Timothy, it's used three times in First Timothy, in the first chapter, the second chapter, and the fourth chapter, Ephesians. and then it's used in Second Timothy, the first chapter, and Ephesians is used in the fifth chapter. Is that it? Once. Is that it? That's it. Well, that's interesting. That and Philippians. And yeah. oh, and, and and Philippians. Okay. And Philippians. It's, 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 I don't know what it means. Accordance, it helps. <laughs> it does. It, it certainly does. It's just a, it's an interesting detail. Well, um, let's rush through here. Uh, just verse eight. Um, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And so what I just want to point out is how for Paul, justification goes hand in hand with the, the doing of good works. And I, I love the way that the uh, articles of religion, I think, put it more carefully than some of the other Protestant statements um, in terms of the, the relationship here. Uh, we're accounted righteous, Article 11, before God, only for the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith, not for our own works or deservings, right? So we're forgiven and accepted as righteous for Christ's sake, right? But then it says in verse, or, or in the, uh, um, the 12th article, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. But the way it calls good works the fruits of faith and, and they follow after justification. Right. The, the, not, in, not simply that they might happen to, but that they are the, the fruits of what happens in yeah. justification by faith. Yeah. So that's, I, I like the way that the articles keep those things together. It's cause and effect um, that uh, there's no sort of separation between justification and sanctification. The word the way you sometimes get Protestants sort of articulating it. Right. Whether they intend to or not. Um, so then just the last few verses, um, verse nine, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And just... Um, I think it's a lesson that we all have to learn is you, you have to know when an argument is not worth your time. There are people that really are not worth arguing with because the very fact that you're having to engage in that particular argument shows that the false teacher does not accept church authority and is too wise in their own eyes to be convinced of anything anyway. And so in other words, there are some arguments that I think you have to recognize if you can't see this, then you're not going to see the logic of any argument I'm going to give you to support it. So there's no point in me wasting my breath. Right. Scripture can be made to say anything once the church's rule of faith has been set aside. Yes, and sir. I think that that's kind of what Paul is, is saying right. here. Um, and then verse 12, um, when I said Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, where I've decided to spend the winter there. We, we talked about that briefly in our introductory comments. 
This indicates that Titus is soon to be relieved of his Episcopal duties, at least for a given period of time, and someone is going to fill his shoes there in Crete, either Artemis or Tychicus. And in verse 13, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Um, what I find interesting about that statement is not, not only the names, but you know, to send them on their journey, because of course you're saying, what, what journey? Of course, we don't know, because this is presuming some conversation that Paul and Titus have had. And I think that is extraordinarily unlikely to be faked. It is just, it is the mark of authenticity of a real communication. Yeah. If it's this a, is a forgery, yeah. if this is a forgery, it's very clever because he's basically creating a, presum, a, a, a presumptive conversation that Timothy and Paul have had earlier that he's now alluding to, and it's all a fictive foil. I just right. think it's too, it would be too clever. Yeah. That, that has the ring of truth about it. I think this is, I don't think, I see no reason not to accept that this is an authentic letter of Paul. Right. Um, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. And that probably has to do with this idea of send them on their journey that they may lack nothing. In other words, um, support them, make sure that they go away with sufficient financial resources. And I think that that comment in verse 14 is probably an encouragement to the church to send them on their way generously uh, and so that they are not in need. Um, that's the fruitfulness that he's speaking of there. And then all who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all, amen. And um, in the Greek of verse 15, there's no word the there within the faith, but because of a technicality of, of the way that the wording works that I don't need to get into, it's, it's, it is proper to put a the in there. Mm -hmm. And so I would just remind us that Paul expects that there is a faith, the faith, that people can be expected to conform to, and that you only greet those who love us in the faith, that is heretics, are not, are not to be given this greeting, that there's a distinction between the way we accept and fellowship with those who hold to the faith, the common faith, and those who reject the faith and, and alter it uh, because they're trying to be you know, too clever by half as false teachers often do. And certainly you see that a lot in this epistle. And uh, to be honest, um, maybe a minute or two for any final comments or questions, but I think that, that's pretty much uh, are the book of Titus in a little nutshell. Any last comments or, or questions? I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed this, Paul. This oh, I is, have too, yeah. It's a really fun study and uh, great to have you uh, with us. And I mean, I think these, uh, in fact, this third chapter is just uh, really so existentially applicable today. Yeah. All of us. Right. Uh, it's just, uh, it's convicting. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it all has to do with personal immediate behavior, doesn't it? And yeah, yeah. Attitudes and that kind of thing. Right, right, yeah. Where is, where is Nicopolis? Um, it is, you know, I looked that up in the, in, when we were doing the introduction. I think it's Southern Greece, but I can find the note here. 
pretty quickly. I believe it's Southern Achaia. Uh, let me, yeah, it's in the western part of southern Greece. Yeah, the west uh, along the western edge there of southern Greece. So that's where Paul was hanging out that winter. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, this is before he gets rearrested. By the time we get to Second Timothy, he's been rearrested. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not he's not arrested at this point. No, no. He's, he's still traveling. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you guys have been a lot of fun to to, to study with. I mean, uh, thank you for the invitation.